Genesis chapter 2 this morning. You'll find that on page 2 if you're using the church Bible. And we are looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, as we continue on making our way through this great first book of the revelation of our God in Scripture. And as usual, I know you'll find it helpful to have your own copy open and to be reading along with me this morning. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 4. And before we read God's word, let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we thank you that you are the God of rest, that you are the God who gives rest to the souls of your people through your Son. We thank you that you are the God who provided the hope of that everlasting rest for those who would enter in by faith. We pray that you would help us this morning to hear your voice, that you would give us understanding, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and to turn to you and to be healed. We pray that you would feed us this morning. We pray above all things that you would enable us to see your son in his glory, that you would show us your glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Our God, please satisfy us and give us rest in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1, Moses now entering into that more focused account of creation. We saw the broad account in Genesis chapter 1, and now he is focusing in especially on God's dealings with man, his image bearer, and we're going to get in the weeks ahead into God's dealings in the garden with Adam. And now this is what Moses writes, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Well, you may not know this, that while... Most civilizations have been built around a seven-day work week, a seven-day week in which work and rest and that cycle of work and rest from creation on has been the norm. From 1793 until 1805, there was the French government adopted the idea of a 10-day work week and a three-week month in which men and women would work nine days and rest one and on some occasions would have half a day. And this was known as the French Republican calendar or the French Revolutionary calendar. And it was undergirded by the philosophy of a French atheist named Sylvian Marechal, who set out this idea in his almanac in 1788. And Marechal was purposeful in trying to realign the calendar on astrological ideas and philosophies that were, that were integral to his atheistic and naturalistic worldview because he hated the Christian faith. Now, you may ask, why did the French revolutionary calendar only lasts for about 12 years because men and women in France who even at that time were mostly ungodly and didn't know the Lord and were very secular and humanistic in their thinking they knew something innate within them knew that they needed to rest one day in seven Um, the horses that were overworked during that period died there was much loss suffered in France France suffered greatly by trying to change the calendar to a 10-day work week instead of a seven-day work week. And I think that's interesting because one of the questions that has not often been asked and answered in human history except by the Christian church is why do we recognize a seven-day work week? And we recognize a seven-day work week 
in which we work six and we rest one because that's the pattern that God, who created all things, instituted at the very beginning of time. It's very interesting that Genesis 1 really gives us two things. It gives us the creation of space and time, time and space. God created in the beginning, time. He created cum tempore, with time. He is not bound to time, but he created time and he created space, and everything else that God does occurs in time and space. And then it's interesting that what God does in chapter 2 of Genesis is he sets out a specific portion of time, and he sets off a specific portion of space to be sacred time and sacred space. What God does at the end of creation after he looks back on all that he does, he essentially says to himself, I will set aside sacred time for my image bearer. I will sanctify and hallow the seventh day. I will set apart for myself this one day in seven and I will bless it and that will be a benefit to my image bearer and it will show forth all of my intentions. It will teach him more about me. It will teach him more about himself. It will teach him what he needs from me. It will teach him more about his life. It will teach him that he's a creature. It will teach him that he is easily distracted and needs time to be able to focus on me. It will teach him that I am the creator. And so God sets aside sacred time here in Genesis 2, 1 through 4, and in the upcoming weeks we'll see that the Garden of Eden was sacred space, that God was in every way taking a portion of time and a portion of space and saying, this is the sphere in which my people will worship me. This is the sphere that I have determined for my people to come together and worship me. We're going to see just two things this morning. First, we're going to see the day of rest, and then we're going to see, secondly, the God of rest. We'll notice that as Moses continues the creation account, he says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Now, if we were the inquisitive type, we might ask, why doesn't the creation account end with that? Why not say, why not say the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them, and that was it? Why another day? God doesn't create anything on the seventh day. When I was in high school, there was a really annoying song about God making sweet tea on the eighth day. And then a few years ago, there was a, there was a commercial, a Super Bowl commercial about God making farmers on the eighth day. And the idea being portrayed was that things so good must have been created. If they weren't created in the first six days, the blessing of God still must have continued and overflowed. And in a very real sense, there is a right theology to those misdirected songs. God's blessing would continue. The day of rest would be a day of blessing. Notice that what Moses tells us in verse 2 is, on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day and all the work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, God didn't need to rest. God didn't get tired. The infinite God doesn't get tired. God is not finite. He's not a man that he should get tired and weary. God doesn't sleep or slumber, the psalmist says. So his resting is not, is not a ceasing from any kind of energy-depleting activity. It is a soul-satisfied contemplation of all that he had made. In a sense, the living and true God is looking back over creation, and he is pleased with creation, and he is taking a day to recognize all of the glory and the goodness and the wisdom and the bounty and the blessing of what he has just made. When it says he blessed it, he is putting his covenantal stamp of approval upon it. 
He is saying, it is good because he is good. God is setting apart this day to show forth all of his covenantal blessings that he had just displayed in the creation of the world. Notice that Moses tells us several things, beginning in verse 2, it says that God rested on the seventh day, and then in verse 3, God blessed the seventh day, and then again, God rested from all his works, which he had done in creation. It's very interesting that one of the things that you wouldn't know from the English translation, but is in the Hebrew, is that there are seven lines in these four verses, and that there are seven words in each verse, that God is highlighting the, the importance, the significance, the theological significance to the seventh day, seven in scriptures, the number of completion, consummation, wholeness, fullness. God is saying, I have done everything I have done well. I have set apart this day so that my image bearers will, on one hand, be able to contemplate all of my wonderful works, that they will realize that I have put my blessing on it and that I've done all that I've needed to do. I want to read to us a couple things this morning that I went through as I thought through this passage and as I thought about what, what was the purpose of the day of rest for Adam? What was the purpose of the day of rest as it continued, continued after the fall? And these are some of the things I came up with first. God set apart sacred time for the feeding of the souls of his people. Adam was not to work endlessly. You know, we are given to working endlessly. We all have addictions. Your addiction may be exercise. It may be substance abuse. It may be overworking. In our fallen condition, we are given over to addictions and abuses. God ensured that man would know that he needed to feed spiritually, that he needed to pull away from his ordinary work that he had to have his soul fed, that his body needed rest. Even perfect Adam needed rest. Even a man untouched by sin needed rest. He needed delineation. Um, the Puritans used to refer to the Lord's Day as the market day of the soul. I can't even begin to imagine what Adam would have experienced on the Sabbath day at creation as an unfallen creature with God walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day, communing with him and teaching him and ministering to him and instructing him and being worshipped by him, that perfect fellowship, the perfect worship service. Men are constantly trying to manipulate the perfect worship service through music and art and, and eloquence and rhetoric and None of that would have existed. It was the perfect, sinless worship service of God and Adam. And God was feeding him because man at creation needed to be fed spiritually. Um, it's interesting to me that even as we worship on the Lord's Day now, God gives us a meal. He gives us a sacrament. He not only feeds us with his word, he feeds us with a sacrament that says, this is how you feed on my son, Jesus Christ. This is, I want to feed you. God, God is feeding his people both before the fall and after the fall. God longs to satisfy his people with the joy that they obtain when he is the glorious object of their worship. Instead of viewing the Sabbath day as something cold and restrictive, we should view it as a sacred time in which we get a foretaste of the eternal joy we will have by worshiping God and feasting on him in glory. That, that's, that the Sabbath day should be the best day. I've told you that I had a um, professor say this, and I've done it almost every Lord's Day since, that when his children would wake up on the Lord's Day, he would say to them, what day is it? And they would say, it's the best day of the week. The best day of the week. We only look at it as 
restrictive because we want to do what we want to do. And I don't, I, we don't see that God intends joy. And we don't see that God wants to feed us with the best portion of his word. So I think first, God set apart sacred time for the feeding of the souls of his people. Secondly, God set apart sacred time in order to help his people with all their spiritual weaknesses keep their focus on him. Now, I think this is important. In the creation account, God is often showing things that are reminding Adam that he's just a creature. We said last week he was made out of the same place as the animals. He ate the same food as the animals. Next week, we'll see that there was one tree that God put off limits. That was to remind Adam that he was a creature, that he's not God, that he's not the creator, that he's not self-sufficient. And God is doing that with the Sabbath day. He's setting aside a day and saying, I am God and you need to focus on me. And I'm going to help you focus on me. And remember that while you are the Lord of the lower world, you are still a creature. Now, after the fall, I think this is a profound thought. John Calvin talks about the Lord's day after the fall. He says, why did he sanctify the day? It was to gather us all together so that we may not be distracted. For it takes little to misdirect our senses, which are, are already predisposed to self-interest. Upon the arrival of the slightest inconvenience, we hurry and flurry about and God is forgotten. Consequently, because we are so weak and fragile and fickle, God has given us a day to help us sustain ourselves for the remainder of the week. Without a particular day, after eating and drinking, we would choose between sleeping and letting our minds drift idly and the rest of the day would be used in frivolous activities and the creator would be disregarded all the time. This is brilliant, listen to this. But since we have one day, it is as if God, seeing us going in all directions, says to us, come now, stop, listen to me, so that he might speak to us. When God sees that we're going astray, that we are often lost, that we have turned our backs on him, he calls us back to himself and sets apart one day for us as if to say, now then it is no longer a matter of having a good time. As you're doing for you must be attentive to consider my works, which guide you to adore my glory. I think that that's profound, that the, the, the one day in seven was to meant to help us to focus on God because we don't like to focus on God. And, and we like to focus on all our activities and all of our business. And, and God is forgotten. The God who gives us life and breath and activity and ability is forgotten. So he sets apart one day in seven and says, rest and focus on me. Third, third important thing about the nature of the day of rest. God set apart sacred time to remind his people that he is the creator and they are creatures. I've already mentioned that to you. I won't. I won't bore you with details, but I will say this, that ceasing from work and helping others cease from work on the Lord's Day is one of the best reminders that we are frail children of dust. Um, I used to wonder what it was, because I'm a very hyper-jacked-up person naturally, what it was that in, it compelled people to do speed and to, to do things that sped them up all the time. And it finally hit me after I was converted that because we all, we're all doing this in a thousand different ways, they were trying to be God. Avoid sleep. Sleep by itself shows that we are creatures. God does not sleep. God does not need to rest. Even the very act of sleeping reminds us that we're creatures. Taking time off from our work and helping others cease from their labors and worship God is a reminder that we are just frail creatures of dust, that we are not God, that everything is not in our control, that we do not have the bull by the horns of our lives. It enables us to pull back and say, 
Someone else is in control. Someone else is all-powerful. Someone else never sleeps nor slumbers. Someone else cares for me and the birds and all of creation in a way that I could never care for myself or creation. And so I think that it does teach us that creator-creature distinction. You know, it's also interesting under that that God is essentially telling man to copy him as the creator. He said that we are to work six days and we are to rest one day, and that rest is rest and worship, and that that is for us to emulate our God. You know, Adam was a son of God at creation, and he was to be like his father. He was, he was created in God's image, and he was to reflect that image. I love these words. Adam, like a son, was to copy God. Together on the seventh day, they were to walk in the garden. That day was a time to listen to all the Father had to show and tell him about the wonders of his created work. The Sabbath day was meant to be Father's Day. Oh, I love that. The Sabbath day. Every Lord's Day is meant to be Father's Day every week. It was made for Adam. It also had a hint of the future in it. The Father had finished his work, but Adam had not. Adam is now as a creature to say, okay, the creator who is my father has done these things, has given me this commission, and I am to emulate him. And so it reminds us of our creatureliness and his fatherliness as God. Fourth, God set apart sacred time to gather his people together and remind them of his having separated them from the world for himself. I mentioned last week that in creation you have all these divisions, light from darkness, heaven from earth, Waters above from waters below, waters from dry land, different animals according to their kind, and men from animals. All these separations. And God is showing that he is a God who separates a people to himself, that he separates. And now he does another separation, six days of work, one day of rest. And that one day of rest is the day when God's people gather together and worship him and realize that they're separate unto him. That's the whole point. That's why the Lord's Day is a day of gathering together. God is gathering you out of the world and away from unbelievers and away from the busyness of life and together with other believers. And he's saying, come, I have separated you unto myself. You are my people and I am your God. And so he separates that time, that sacred time. Fifth, God set apart sacred time to strengthen and equip his people for their labors throughout the forthcoming week. I cannot count the number of times that I have been carried along through difficult weeks, riding on the coattails of being ministered to on the Lord's Day, riding on the coattails of the messages that I've heard. I can't tell you how many times God intends to build his people up and strengthen them. You know what? By Saturday, we're all shot, except for the kids, all the adults. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And they come, and they're hard. I can't think of one week I've had in the last two years that I haven't been shot at the end of the week. And so the Lord's Day is a day where God strengthens us. The psalmist says he takes us from strength to strength. I think that's an indication of the Lord's Day. He takes his people from one day of rest to the next so that they're strengthened and built up and established and then sent out for their labors throughout the forthcoming week. Now, we need to be careful because it's possible that we could become so consumed with the, the now purposes of the Lord's day that we miss the greater purposes of the day of rest. The greater purposes are that God had an everlasting rest for man to enter into. 
we get this in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 goes back to Genesis 2. It goes back to Genesis 2, 2 and 3, and it says that there still is a Sabbath rest remaining for the people of God to enter into, and that heaven is called by the name of rest. I just um, read a great quote by Spurgeon where he said, to the weary and heavy laden, the word rest is full of heaven. To the weary and heavy laden, the word rest is full of heaven. God uses the word rest and the idea of the seventh day rest at creation to denote that there was a heaven to enter into for Adam before the fall. Adam could have entered into something higher. He was to work and obey, and as the representative, we were all in Adam. We were all represented by him. If he had obeyed and done the work God had called him to do and passed the temptation and the trial, he would have entered into the heavenly rest, the Sabbath rest. The rest of the scripture is telling us how that rest can be achieved, that there's still a chance of entering into that rest, that there's still a possibility. God gives it under a type. In the Old Testament of Israel, after they're redeemed and they go through the wilderness and Joshua finally brings them into the land of promise. And in a typical sense, God gives them rest in the land. And he comes and he rests with them in the tabernacle and then in the temple. That that was a type of entering the eternal rest. And the writer of Hebrews says that we enter by faith. There remains a rest for the people of God and we enter by faith that multitudes will not enter that everlasting rest because they will perish like Israel did. Old Covenant Church perished in unbelief. They heard the word, they heard the gospel, they heard the promises, they heard that there was a rest to gain, they heard about an inheritance, and they did not believe. You know, it's interesting that even the promised land would have been gained by faith. The Israelites were to believe the word of God, and they were to go in and they were to take possession of that land by faith. But they didn't believe. And so they allowed the other inhabitants to live there and they disobeyed because they were unbelieving. They disobeyed in the wilderness. They disobeyed in Canaan. And so the Bible was saying there's got to be another rest. That that seventh day pointing to eternal rest. There's got to be another rest. And the writer of Hebrews with such unbelievable depth looks at the scripture and he says there's still a rest that remains for the people of God. Let's make sure that we don't fail to lay hold of it, that the purpose of our lives, the singular purpose of your life, one of them, one side of the singular purpose, ought to be to enter into that eternal rest. Your thoughts ought to be consumed about entering into that eternal rest. You ought to say to yourself, whatever happens to me, God could take my business, my children, my ministry, everything, my health away from me, but God, do not take your eternal rest away from me. Do not let me perish in unbelief. Now, there's an analogy. It's interesting that there's an analogy between physical work and physical rest and spiritual work and spiritual rest. And so the seventh point I have here for us about the nature of the day of rest is that it is meant to show us that there has to be another a second Adam who will provide that rest for us. It's showing us that someone has to lead us into that rest. It's God sets apart sacred time now for us to help us better see our need for Jesus who entered into time, who labored in agony on the cross to secure that rest for our souls. I love in the Gospels where 
the Pharisees are always debating with Jesus about the Sabbath day. And they love the Sabbath day for self-interest and self-righteous purposes. And Jesus is out healing on the Sabbath day. And in Matthew 11, just as soon as Jesus utters the words, come unto me, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon, upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. No sooner does Jesus say that, the next thing Matthew says is that he goes out and he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, and they despise him, and they're missing the point. They're missing the point. He is the Sabbath rest. He will provide the Sabbath rest. The fact that he healed people on the Lord's Day was saying he was coming to restore and to open that way to that everlasting rest and that now he would give rest for the soul and then he would give rest in the presence of God forever when, like Adam in the garden, man and God dwelt in unbroken fellowship again in heaven. Man will dwell in the presence of God and walk in the cool of the garden of paradise for glory on the new heavens and the new earth. God filling all things and restored to man because of what Jesus does. And the question is, how does he do it? Well, he does it by laboring. He labors in travail. His soul is weighed down with grief and sorrow because he has to drink a cup of wrath that we should have drank because we tried to work for our salvation and we took things in our own hands and we didn't rest and worship God because Adam broke the Sabbath, because Adam broke that fellowship he should have had with God because Adam forgot his creatureliness because we forget it because in a thousand ways we forget it every day and every week of our life Jesus came and he drank the cup of wrath that we should have drank as the second Adam no it's meditating this week on Jesus and receiving the vinegar on the cross vinegar is soured, partially fermented fruit. He takes the bitterness because Adam reached out to take fruit and disobey God. He goes to the tree that Adam should have passed by and obeyed, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the cross becomes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus says, I will restore, I will work, and I will obey, and I will only take of that tree, and I will regain for my people the knowledge of good and evil that they have perverted and lost and have, and have gained contrary to my purpose for them. I will do that. And Jesus worked. And then as he hangs on the cross, and this is remarkable, just as God looked back over creation and blessed it, and he, he had a, a soul satisfaction, Jesus, at the end of his sufferings, looks back over everything that he's done, and he cries out, it is finished. In a sense, he is blessing his work of redemption. I have finished it, and it is good. And then he rests in the tomb, dead, on the old covenant Sabbath. And he rests from his work of redemption so that when we come to him by faith and believe in him, we receive rest for our souls. Jonathan Edwards summed up the rest-providing nature of Jesus's redemptive work when he said Christ resting from the work of redemption is expressly spoken of as being parallel with God's resting from the work of creation 
For he that has entered into his rest, he has also ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Secondly, and very briefly, I want to talk about the God of rest, because behind all the concept of of our need for rest and the day of rest and what that what we can enter into and what's what's in front of us is the God of rest. All of this is the overflow of who God is. It was Augustine in that probably most famous statement in church history, you have made us for yourself and our souls are restless until they find rest in you. That God is himself the God of rest. He is he is all satisfying in himself. And this is remarkable. And I want us to think about this in a in a unusual perhaps way of looking at God blessing and resting on the seventh day. He doesn't just say God blessed it and made it a day of rest for us. Genesis says that he blessed it and he rest. He rested. He rested in it. That, that we are pressing on so that we can rest with him by faith in Christ. So we can enter into that eternal rest. But God rested. John Owen has this remarkable, remarkable thought. He says, God's rest in creation on the seventh day was not the complete resting of God. The completed resting of God comes when he rests in Jesus Christ. He comes and he embodies the Lord Jesus. God comes and he rests in Jesus' person and his work. And then Owen says, and then he rests in us. It's not just that we rest in him, but that the God of rest comes and he, he pitches his tabernacle among us and he indwells his people. That, sh- that should blow your mind that in worship you should not just be thinking about resting in God and offering to God praise, but that God comes down on the congregation. He rests in his people. He indwells us by the Spirit. That is remarkable that dust, God put his face in the go- dust and he kissed life into existence and breathed his image into man and man falls and perverts that and God says you know what I'm going to restore my rest I the God of rest I'm going to give rest to my people but I am going to rest with them that is absolutely remarkable I think when we look at Jesus and he is God he is the God who rested on the seventh day and we see him dwelling with his disciples and living with them sleeping on a boat with them. He's with them. He's the God that says, lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. I want to say this as we close this morning. I, like every other minister, am saddened by how Christians have neglected the Lord's day. It's not the Lord's half day. It's the Lord's day. Um, but sadden that we don't better understand the good, blessed, gracious purpose of our God to feed us and to strengthen us, to build us up, to carry us along, to show us that there's a glory awaiting us, to teach us more about Jesus, to teach us more about what it means to have rest for our souls, to teach us more about what it means that he rests with us. I mean, the world has never heard things so remarkable, and we treat them so lightly Because we just, as Calvin said, we want to hurry and flurry and do all our things. I would exhort all of us today that you would come to the Lord Jesus for rest for your soul, that you would go to him. You would cry out, Lord, give me rest for my soul. Teach me. 
to delight in you on the day of rest. Teach me to delight together with your people on the day of rest. Teach me to value this great blessing that you've given us. This, this day you have pronounced your blessing upon, your covenantal blessing on. Help me to understand better why this is the best thing for my soul. This is the best thing I could ever do. Better than all the workout, better than all the pampering you can do, better than anything you could ever buy to make yourself feel better. God wants to rest with us. He wants to rest with us in worship and in fellowship. I hope that you'll be encouraged. I hope that we'll pursue together the Lord Jesus and the God who rests with us in our eternal rest that he still sets before us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Father in heaven, we are ashamed of how little we have delighted in you, the God of rest, and uh, enjoyed and made the most of the day of rest, and, and how little we have come to you, Lord Jesus, the one who, with the most gracious words ever spoken, said, come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would make us to know what it is to rest in Christ and his finished work for us on the cross. We pray, Father, that you would make us to know more of your resting with us because you rested in him from the work of redemption. Father, please stir up our minds and hearts and give us a great desire and, and zeal to be together and to worship you and to give you the glory and honor due to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.